Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. More than two decades ago, the Violence Against Women Act, or VAWA, was signed into law. The federal law helped reduce domestic violence in the U.S. by more than 60 percent. But Congress has yet to reauthorize the landmark domestic violence law it lapsed last year. How does this impact programs to prevent domestic violence and help survivors nationwide, including here in Connecticut? Today, where we live, we find out, including how the federal law addresses Native American communities and what gaps remain. Lynn Malerba will join us. She's chief of the Mohegan tribe in Uncasville, Connecticut. First, the most dangerous time for a woman in a domestic violence relationship is when she tries to leave her abuser. Federal law bans people under permanent restraining orders from buying or possessing a firearm, but that's not the case for people under temporary restraining orders. Ryan Lindsay, a reporter for Connecticut Public Radio, reported on this for the Guns in America Public Radio Reporting Collaborative. And Ryan joins me now in studio. Uh, Ryan, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, Before we hear about uh, this uh, very powerful story that you reported on, I wanted to just give this uh, warning to our listeners. We're going to be talking about what happened to uh, one Connecticut woman, and our conversation will include uh, graphic descriptions of domestic violence. Uh, So, Ryan, tell us about Lori Jackson. Who was she? Yes, Lori Jackson was uh, born and raised in Oxford, the town of Oxford, Connecticut. Um, Her parents uh, built this beautiful log home uh, from scratch. And I went out there and saw the home myself. And she lived, um, I guess, a fairly normal life. There's uh, her mother shared pictures uh, of her at a high school dance that she was going to um, when she had just graduated, a picture in her sweatshirt. Um, And so at at one point in time, Lori uh, met her husband, her then husband, and his name was uh, Scott. And her mother had questions about that relationship. Um, she was concerned about how he was treating her and noticed that he was seemed to be rather controlling, nit, nitpicky things like um, he might always want to sit next to her at a family gathering um, or would pinch her arm and say, oh, no, it's just little love bites. And so there are things that definitely begin to to raise concern uh, for Mary Jackson. Um, But eventually her daughter made the decision that she wanted to get married. um, And not too long after she was pregnant with twins. And, um, and then, you know, their relationship sort of, it it became complicated. It became um, violent at times. Um, And it ultimately ended with um, Lori's death, uh, Mm -hmm. which was a really challenging and heartbreaking thing to have to witness Mm -hmm. um, and for that family, the Jackson family, to go through. Mm -hmm. So uh, Lori Jackson was killed by her husband, Scott, in 2014. Uh, At the time, uh, so when things started to go really uh, badly uh, in the relationship, what did Lori and her mother, Mary Jackson, do? So... Lori and Scott had a fight and uh, he she eventually Lori fled down the streets. She lived a couple houses over from her parents in Oxford and she left. And then the next day, Scott uh, left. And so they were unable to find him for about five weeks. But what she did, what her and her mother did was go to the courthouse to fire 
excuse me, file a temporary restraining order. Now, in 2014 in Connecticut, even if you did, if there was a temporary temporary restraining order against you, you were still able to buy, uh, purchase or possess a, mm-hmm. a gun. And, and that could also happen um, outside of state lines. And so what happened was that Scott purchased a firearm, according to police report in Virginia, a handgun, because when he left, he actually took his shotgun um, with him, which Lori and her mother were aware of. And then returned, um, unfortunately, that day uh, in 2015 to mm-hmm. fatally shoot Lori um, and then wound. Uh, Mary was shot several times. Oh, I'm sorry. She was um, murdered in 2015? 2014. 2014. I'm sorry about okay. that. Okay. Um, and so then that mm-hmm. led lawmakers and, and a lot of folks in Connecticut to ask to 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 realize and see that there is a gap. And so in 2016 here in Connecticut, they made it illegal for someone who does have a TRO against mm-hmm. them uh, to purchase or possess a firearm. So you uh, spoke to uh, Lori Jackson's uh, mother, Mary Jackson. Uh, when Lori Jackson tried to get a temporary restraining order, she was able to, the court um, agreed. Yes. But for Mary Jackson, that didn't happen. Yes. Um, and was I, that concerning to, to Mary? It was. I think that she she had a legitimate reason to felt feel she was she felt that she was in danger. Um, there were times she shared with me that Scott would come home, uh, very angry, uh, and you know, point his finger in her face or get really close and and yell at her and things like that, or follow her out to the car because Mary herself had retired to to take care of the twin children. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she was experiencing that treatment and she wasn't happy about it. Um, but for whatever reason, the courts did not grant her herself that protection, but Lori was granted that TRO. And in that five weeks um, that Scott was gone, Lori's uh, restraining order actually expired. And so she had applied for another one and actually had a date for a permanent restraining order, a hearing date. Um, but unfortunately, um you know, Scott came back and took her life before that was possible. Uh, you spoke with Mary Jackson, as I mentioned, um, and she told you what happened that day. We're going to play a part of that interview for our listeners. We were fighting at the door, and um, at that, that time, he had Lori by the hair, and he was trying to pull her out, and Lori and I had our arms clasped, and, you know, we were both pulling against him and screaming, and um, he... He was losing the battle, and he just let go with one hand and went in his pocket and pulled out a gun. And so he shot both Lori Jackson and her mother. Yes, um, it. If she said that, uh, I mean, they were they were there fighting uh, when Scott. They heard him initially at the door. He was banging on the door. Uh, Mary Jackson was wearing a panic button around her neck. Um, because they just said that during those five weeks, they were living in constant fear. She had a fear. She said that uh, we knew that he was coming in a rage. So they knew that it, oftentimes, which is sort of um, kind of challenging to wrap your head around, but the reality is that when women take these steps to leave a relationship, that escalates and amplifies the um, the potential for violence. Um, and so they have the protection through a restraining order in some form or fashion, but then that's when um, the abusive partner seems that they are losing that control or there only may be a certain amount of time until they can, you know, they, they're losing their control in those situations. And so they were very fearful of what Scott could do, um, that he did have access to a firearm and then was able to get another one um, uh, through a legal sale mm-hmm. and in um, another state in another state right um and so that was just something that <laughs> when 
you know, I spoke with a police officer who Lori had gone to the Oxford Police Department to file a domestic violence report um, against her husband. And this particular officer was a state trooper at the time. And so he would call and check on her. And one of the things that he said was, I wish we had the manpower to really be at outside of the home to provide that physical barrier of protection that could have prevented Scott from coming back into the home. Um, but unfortunately, they didn't have the manpower to do so. And it was it created a really precarious situation. They didn't know where he was, what state he was in. At one point in time, he had, you know, spoken with police and, and mentioned that he was in Florida. Um, hindsight, the police officer said that he was probably making his way back from Virginia up to Connecticut um, for that that terrible morning when he came, um, stormed in the house and eventually, you know, took his killed his wife and, and seriously wounded Mary. Mary had a series of surgeries. Um she was shot in in the jaw mm-hmm. and one of the bullets exited through her eye. And so she really she didn't even get to attend Lori's funeral because she was still mm-hmm. in the hospital um, recovering from those injuries. It's a hard story uh, to hear. Uh, Ryan Lindsay with me, reporter for Connecticut Public Radio and the Guns in America Public Radio Reporting Collaborative. Uh, Ryan, you mentioned uh, in 2014 uh, uh, in Connecticut at the time uh, with a uh, with Reese's restraining orders, uh, there was the gap uh, to uh, for abusers to potentially uh, buy or possess uh, firearms. So with uh, Mary losing her daughter, uh, she actually heard from U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal and the law was changed. Tell us how that happened. So uh, Senator Blumenthal met uh, Mary within months of the shooting. And she he recalls that she was still in bandages um, when when he met her. And they had a few conversations. The Jacksons, Mary and Doug, traveled to Washington, D.C. to advocate for the passage of what Blumenthal introduced as the Lori Jackson Domestic Violence Survivor Protection Act mm-hmm. to Congress uh, in 2000, 2000, excuse me, 2014, 13, 14 session of, of Congress and um, went on to introduce it a few more times. Now the language for the Lori Jackson Domestic Violence Survivor Protection Act has been rolled into VAWA. And so that's specifically looking at this. Um, some some folks have described it as a loophole, basically, that allows um, abusers to still purchase and possess, legally purchase and possess firearms, even when they have a temporary restraining order against them. So what's one of the things that's happening with this new newest version of VAWA is that um, people are seeking those or lawmakers and domestic violence advocates uh, are supporting or seeking to have that protection uh, made law federally. And so that that basically alleviates the potential of someone being able to go across the state uh, border just to an, uh, one, two, three, several states away and purchase something that they could ultimately do harm with. Mm-hmm. In Connecticut, the law was changed regarding yes. temporary restraining orders, but you mentioned uh, the federal law, there is still that gap. Yes. So in 2016, um, Representative Robin Porter herself is a survivor of domestic violence. And so she put a lot of her weight behind that legislation that went on to pass here in 2016, just two years after Lori was fatally shot by her husband. And that has uh, seemingly made a difference here uh, in Connecticut when it comes to uh, domestic violence fatalities. Mm-hmm. Guns still remain to be, uh, remain the number one uh, weapon when um, for these intimate partner homicides. And um, something that April Zioli, she's a researcher at uh, University of Michigan, looked at is that when states apply this protection to temporary restraining orders, there is an overall 16 percent decrease in intimate partner homicides 
uh, with a firearm and a 13 percent decrease with intimate partner homicides as a whole. So basically what that means or the difference is that uh, it wasn't just changing. There weren't just fewer homicides with a firearm. There are fewer homicides overall. So abusers weren't resorting to, you know, a knife or some other sort of weapon to commit these crimes. There, It did have providing those protections with the temporary restraining or was decreasing the number of women that were dying at the hands of their partner overall. We did reach out to the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Uh, its uh, CEO, Karen Jarmok, uh, also reiterated what you had mentioned, Ryan Lindsay, that according to the Connecticut Domestic Violence Fatality Review Task Force, firearms continue to be the main use of force in domestic violence homicides over the past decade in our state. Again, Ryan Lindsay is with me, reporter for Connecticut Public Radio and the Guns in America Public Radio Reporting Collaborative. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're going to talk more about the Violence Against Women Act, known as VAWA, uh, may uh, passed into law about 25, more than 25 years ago. This federal law needs to be reauthorized. As Ryan reported, a version of VAWA would address this gap that allows people under temporary restraining orders to still possess or buy a firearm. We're going to talk more about that after the break. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about gaps that exist to help domestic violence victims. Now, protections have been in place under the Federal Violence Against Women Act, but this law passed more than 25 years ago needs to be reauthorized. Now, before we talk about what the debate has been in Congress, uh, we wanted to learn more about uh, how uh, the federal law came to be and what it has accomplished over the last two decades. Uh, Before I bring in my next guest, I I did want to mention if you or someone you know is in a domestic violence situation in Connecticut, the statewide hotline for help is 888-774-2900. If you're a Spanish speaker, it's 844-831-9200. Now, joining our conversation uh, now by phone, Julie Goldscheid is professor at the City University of New York or CUNY Law School. Julie, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you. Also with me in studio is Ryan Lindsay, a reporter for Connecticut Public Radio. Uh, uh, Julie, I I read the statistic that after VAWA was passed in the U.S., domestic violence uh, cases um, actually dropped more than 60 percent. So what was it looking like, uh, again, before advocates started to push Congress to make some changes? Yeah. So, of course, um, uh, the Violence Against Women Act was a very historic change in our federal laws because it was the first time that there was federal, you know, nationwide recognition of domestic violence, intimate partner violence, as well as sexual assault. So I think it's important to remember that uh, intimate partner violence and sexual assault exist on a continuum. Mm -hmm. And the programming, although the initial version of VAWA focused perhaps primarily on domestic violence, it also covered um, sexual, sexual assault, sexual violence as well, which of course has come into the public attention in recent years with the Me Too movement. So, but yeah, before VAWA was passed in 1994, states had been active. There had been some federal legislation providing funding, for example, for um, domestic violence emergency shelters. But um, it was the first time the federal government, Congress, bipartisan Congress, um, passed a law comprehensively addressing the problem. 
and it did so after four years of history and careful deliberation and testimony from people from all parts of the community about the problem the devastation it causes, as we heard from this important reporting that um, that you've just recounted, and um, and what the law can do to help. Some of our listeners uh, may know this, but uh, Vice President Joe Biden uh, played a significant role in the passage of VAWA. Um, how did he become an ally? He was really moved by the issue, and he um, spearheaded um, working with Congress and working with advocates to develop a law that uh, that addressed the problem from multiple perspectives. So the 1994 bill, as it was passed, um, directed a lot of funding to the issue. I believe it was $1.6 billion um, to address the problem over the course of six years. And that funding primarily was addressed um, address the criminal legal system, which in more recent years has come to be critiqued for the for its limitations and for the problems that it has and the way it disproportionately harms certain communities. But even the 1994 bill also funded services for survivors, for example, counseling, emergency shelter, advocacy. Um, the initial bill included really important provisions that were drafted in consultation with advocates to help undocumented immigrant survivors to make sure that they could help stabilize their status without having to rely on their abuser. Um, And the 1994 bill also included a civil rights remedy that would make it a part of our complement of federal civil rights laws um, to enable somebody who had been subjected to gender-based violence, meaning intimate partner violence or sexual violence, to sue the person who committed that act in federal court as a violation of their civil rights. And um, that part of the law attracted a lot of attention during the initial passage, and it ultimately was declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court in 2000. Uh, Before uh, we get more into um, some of uh, what's happened since VAWA has been renewed several times since uh, 1994, I did want to go back to when we're talking about uh, intimate uh, partner violence. Uh, There was this other stat that we saw that six out of 10 uh, women who were murdered in 1991 were killed by someone they knew. So how did Americans respond to this idea that violence, uh, assault uh, could be perpetrated by someone you know and not, uh, not just a stranger? Yeah. Well, you know, there are longstanding stereotypes. It's sort of a, um, uh, um, there's a, like, inconsistency. Like, intimate partner violence is so prevalent, and yet we know so little about it and are reluctant to talk about it. So um, people, we have stereotypes where people think that, how could that happen? And, oh, it must just be a dispute or a disagreement or a disagreement gone awry. And historically, when police would be called to um, the scene of what has been called a domestic dispute, they would want to just separate the partners. They would, you know, tell the aggressor, usually the man, to take a walk around the block. And we didn't really recognize how serious the problem is. And we didn't really recognize that in many, many cases, what might start as um, the coercive, the controlling kind of behavior that you talked about um, in your reporting um, escalates into the kind of lethal violence that, um, you know, is so unfortunate and so harmful. Mm. 
I mentioned that uh, VAWA now needs to be uh, reauthorized. Uh, Congress uh, took this issue up, I believe, a year ago. Uh, Ryan Lindsay, who's with me from Connecticut Public Radio, uh, this debate over uh, renewing VAWA, um, not clearing uh, both uh, the House and the Senate. Some of the the holdup is because of um, people wondering if how this would infringe on Second Amendment rights. Can you explain that for us? Right. So the VAWA for funding or the (laughs) funding for VAWA, there we go, is for the most part still intact. It's from the Office of uh, Violence Against Women, which is a federal office underneath the DOJ, the Department of Justice. And so these domestic violence organizations are still able to apply for funding. And that was the case. There was a lapse for VAWA. It wasn't reauthorized or it was unauthorized, I should say, between 2010 and 2013. So this gap has happened before, but the difference with this version of VAWA is that there's roughly four to five provisions that really look to to address some loopholes or some current concerns in a, in a way, um, sort of legislate behavior or what can and can't happen. Um, one of those is a temporary restrictive order uh, that we talked about providing uh, broader coverage. Another one is, is what folks uh, refer to frequently as a boyfriend loophole. And so what that means is that the way it's currently written, um, protections for partners can only be provided with some, it's very, very specific uh, criteria. So someone you had to have been married to, someone who lived with you. So these stipulations, as uh, many advocates are and organizations are pointing out, are not enough because what about the boyfriend who you're no longer with, who still knows where you live, who still can come back to your home, who can still um, stalk you? And that's also part of it is that anybody, can, they're looking to pass Um, include this enhancement in VAWA that basically says anyone who's convicted of stalking loses their ability to purchase or um, possess a firearm. And so those have raised some concerns with folks who are saying this is um, preventing us uh, or people really from having um, due process, from being able to, you know, go before a court and have that play out um, versus just saying, okay, you've you've committed this misdemeanor um, and now you're not allowed to uh, purchase or possess a firearm. So there definitely have been concerns about that um, when it comes to this current version of VAWA. Mm-hmm. Uh, Julie Goldscheid, uh, have you heard from Ryan Lindsay about these new provisions? You know, what is your response to this, uh, how this debate has uh, really tied up uh, reauthorizing VAWA for the future? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting. So the law initially passed in 1994. Um, it was drafted in a way that the funding provisions had to be reauthorized in 2000. And it was again reauthorized in 2000, really without much controversy. And, you know, with each reauthorization, um, the drafters have taken into account input from the field and have improved it to try to tailor services to be more responsive to what survivors really need and to improve our responses with the goal of really um, uh, preventing intimate partner and sexual violence. So in 2000, it was reauthorized to address dating violence and to fund civil legal services and to improve provisions for battered immigrants. In 2005, it was also reauthorized, again, with very little controversy, um, increasing attention and services and resources for underserved communities and to improve housing provisions, um, to fund rape crisis centers. But in in 2011, as Ryan described, um, that's when it was held up, and um, it was the focus of a lot of controversy um, at that time over the provisions helping um, undocumented immigrants who were survivors, helping Native Americans, 
and um, an anti-discrimination provision that would prohibit discrimination in services against LGBT survivors. So ultimately it was passed in 2013, but not without a fight. So again, um, in a way, no surprise if you take into account how um, uh, partisan Congress has become. Um, in a way, no surprise that there again is controversy, and it's over those same issues. It's about um, the uh, anti-discrimination provision that would ensure equal access for everyone, including LGBT survivors, as well as the services for Native survivors. And it also includes now this um, controversy over the so-called boyfriend loophole and the other provisions seeking to close the loopholes in um, and address what we know about the relationship between gun violence, gun possession, and um, intimate partner violence. Uh, with me by phone again is Julie Goldscheid, a professor at uh, City University of New York Law School or CUNY Law School. And with me in studio, Ryan Lindsay, reporter for Connecticut Public Radio and the Guns in America Public Radio Reporting Collaborative. Uh, Julie, you mentioned uh, in the past uh, bipartisan support and that fact that it is concerning that this is uh, becoming a partisan issue. You know, what are your concerns moving forward if this reauthorization continues to be delayed? Yeah. So as Ryan said, what has happened in the past, um, Congress has um, uh, has continued funding for the programs that are funded through VAWA, through annual appropriations bills. But that's not as secure. It's not as certain as having a law on the books, ideally, that would create some sort of permanent funding. I, uh, you know, some advocates are calling for permanent funding for at least some of the programs. Um, as drafted, the law has had, you know, about five-year windows, and that just provides a lot more security for people who are um, running programs, usually on a shoestring, even when you have federal funding. So um, it's both the wear and tear of having to constantly apply for funding, but also the uncertainty. How can you train and hire staff um, if you're not certain how long your funding is going to uh, continue? I mentioned we reached out and, to the Connecticut uh, Coalition Against Domestic Violence, Karen Jarmok. She also added, while the financial resources around domestic violence advocacy remain intact, the longevity and sustainability of such critical supports is at a continued risk until this measure is formally approved. So she is echoing what, you, what you're saying, Julie. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's great to see the statistics showing decreases mm -hmm. in domestic violence, but um, some programs also are reporting an increase in demand, and it's for intimate partner violence, but also for sexual violence. I think, especially in the wake of the Me Too movement, many people um, are feeling more empowered to speak out and to realize that there may be help out there and are reaching out to service providers for help, and that um, assistance is critically important in helping people move on and reckon with what has happened. And some of the important provisions that are included in the version of the VAWA reauthorization that was passed by the Senate would go a long way to addressing prevention and some of the other underlying problems that um, that continue to wreak havoc in survivors' lives. Mm -hmm. So some of those important provisions address things like economic security, health care, housing, um, address 
um, increase options for incarcerated survivors and um, increase some alternatives to incarceration since we've learned that that really is not um, the best response in many cases uh, to intimate partner and sexual violence. I wanted to go back to Ryan Lindsay, reporter for Connecticut uh, Public Radio. Uh, Ryan, you did mention earlier about Senator uh, Richard Blumenthal proposing uh, federal legislation to address, again, this gap with uh, temporary restraining orders. Uh, Any other um, um, thoughts from your reporting um, as we look to see if VAWA is reauthorized? Something that Julie said um, is, is very true in terms of the number of Uh, women being harmed by people they already know. And that's something, a statistic that's mirrored when it comes to sexual assault and and violence is that generally, if I'm not mistaken, it's well over 60% um, of sexual assault and violence that happens by people that know each other. And so it's sort of not the, not the, oh, I was, you know, um, violated by a person on the street, but it could be that boyfriend, that partner. Um, There was also... I guess in in the 90s as well, people were sort of balking at the um, the prospect of the reality of spousal rape, right? Mm-hmm. And these conversations about what does consent look like in a relationship with someone that you've known over a period of time. And so um, VAWA, I think this newest reiteration is really looking to hone in on those nuanced areas or those gray areas where there could be an assumption that because you're dating someone that you are safe or because you're dating someone that they respect Mm -hmm. you and they have your best interests at heart. And what the statistics show and really what Lori's Mm -hmm. story shows is that that's not always the case. well, I want to thank uh, Ryan Lindsay uh, for joining us again, reporter for Connecticut Public Radio and the Guns in America Public Radio Reporting Collaborative, and Julie Goldscheid, professor at CUNY Law School. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. This is where we live. Up next, we're going to learn how VAWA could be strengthened to help Native American communities. Uh, Dr. Lynn Malerba, who is chief of the Mohegan tribe here in Connecticut, will join us. First, it's uh, Connecticut Public Radio's winter fundraising campaign. If you appreciate these conversations, please support us with a pledge today. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Dalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, 32 million Latinos will be eligible to vote in November. How should President Trump and the Democratic presidential candidates reach out to them? Now, if you're a member of the Hispanic or Latino communities here in Connecticut, on the next Where We Live, we want to hear from you. In this election year, what issues matter most to you? You can join us tomorrow. Now, violence affects both Native American women and men at alarming rates. A 2016 study found that more than half of Native women experience sexual violence in their lifetime. Now, how does the Federal Violence Against Women Act helped help them, and what gaps remain? Joining us now by phone is Chief Many Hearts, Dr. Lynn Malerba of the Mohegan Tribe in Uncasville, Connecticut. She's also Secretary of the United South and Eastern Tribe Sovereignty Protection Fund, which represents 27 federally recognized tribal nations. Uh, Chief Malerba, Dr. Malerba, welcome to the show. Uh, quiet. Thank you, Lucy. Thank you for inviting me to be on this show. This is a very important issue. Um, I, I mentioned this uh, statistic that more than half of Native American women experience sexual violence in their lifetime. I got that stat from testimony uh, you gave before the Senate Committee on Indian Affairs uh, back in, in 2019. Why are rates of violence so high among um, Native Americans? Well, you know, I'm, I, I don't know that we have causation and we don't have good causal effect for that. Uh, but what is very disconcerting about this statistic is that 96% of crimes committed um, regarding violent crime on uh, for Native women and Native children are uh, committed by non-Natives. Mm-hmm. 
and children frequently witness or or are abused at the same time. And you know, so given the lack of good data, we really can't get down to you know what the causation of that is, so that we could deal with that in a better way. Mm-hmm. Uh, We're going to be talking about um, some of the issues that you have raised uh, before the Senate Committee on on Indian Affairs about ways the federal government uh, should uh, be uh, helping uh, Native American communities uh, nationwide, but also uh, laws and Supreme Court uh, rulings that have impacted how uh, Native uh, tribes are able to respond to this issue. But I first wanted to uh, play a clip from Sliver of a Full Moon by Cherokee playwright Mary Catherine Nagel. Uh, for our listeners, this play tells the story of the efforts of Native activists around the 2013 VAWA reauthorization. The script includes interviews with Native survivors of domestic violence, and many of the parts are read by survivors themselves talking about their own experiences. Um, here's Lisa Brunner, or Brunner, a member of the White Earth Ojibwe Nation, reading part of her story at a performance back in 2015. My daughter was raped this past summer. Even though they wore bandanas, my daughter recognized their white skin and their blonde hair. They were doing what I call hunting on our reservation. Non-natives know they can come onto our lands and rape us with impunity. My daughter was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. She didn't come and tell me right away. She washed and she hid it. Again, that's a, a clip from the play Sliver of a Full Moon, also performed at Yale Law School in 2015. I understand, uh, Dr. Malerba, you gave opening remarks at that performance. Uh, that clip speaks to what you had said earlier about uh, non-Native offenders uh, often um, abusing uh, Native American women. Uh, tell us your response to that play and, again, uh, the issues that you have raised. Well, that play was heartbreaking, but unfortunately, it is um, a, an accurate depiction of what happens in Native communities. And one of the real issues there are jurisdictional issues. When a crime is committed on a reservation, um, what happens is there are jurisdictional issues around that. And in, in fact, it's considered a federal crime in most instances. In in those instances, only 67% of those crimes are never prosecuted. And so non-Native people do feel as though they can offend with impunity on reservations. And Native women living on reservations face murder rates more than 10 times mm-hmm. the national average. And that is just a statistic that is astounding. Mm-hmm. And yet the Department of Justice does not track that. In 2016, the Urban Health Institute found that 5,712 missing Native women, of those women, only 116 had been logged into the Department of Justice's database. Hmm. Can I go back to that statistic, one of the statistics that you just uh, recounted for us? 67% of these cases are not prosecuted. Why is that? Because there, it's a very co- a complicated jurisdictional mm-hmm. issue. In some cases, uh, tribal officers will be the first people to respond, and they have no protections in the Violence Against Women reauthorization, mm-hmm. or there, will, there should be more. Um, in some cases, the state repo- response, in some cases, uh, the Bureau of Indian Affairs response, in some cases, the federal um, agents respond, the FBI response. And so there's a chain of custody issues around that, but there's no clear jurisdictional authority, and that just complicates that issue. Mm. 
And we know that Native American tribal nations like the Mohegan tribe are sovereign uh, political entities within the United States. If this, if these uh, cases were happening in places uh, in Connecticut that were on non-Native lands, uh, you'd see a completely different response from authorities. Exactly right. Exactly right. So think of it, this is very confounding, but given this simple analogy, if a Connecticut resident perpetrated a violent crime in Rhode Island, Rhode Island would prosecute that crime, not Connecticut. And yet, in many instances, tribes are not able to prosecute their the crimes in their own courts. And so we are looking to expand the ability to do that prosecution. And um, there is a, a special domestic violence criminal jurisdiction um, uh, piece of the law that is being proposed, but it also is in the Tribal Law and Order Act and the Violence Against Women Act of 2013. But there are states that refuse to um, to allow that to continue, and they believe that the state government still have jurisdiction over those offenses that are committed in Indian country, mm-hmm. which we disagree with. Again, joining me by phone is Chief Many Hearts, Dr. Lynn Malerba of the Mohegan Tribe in Uncasville, Connecticut, as we talk about uh, some of these gaps uh, that still remain in uh, the Federal uh, Violence Against Women Act and also how the federal government um, um, allows uh, Native American communities and how they can have jurisdiction to prosecute, go after uh, these particular offenders uh, on uh, tribal lands. Uh, I mentioned, you mentioned the, the VAWA renewals in 2013. There have been some provisions to help address these jurisdiction issues. Can you talk about some of the other gaps and what has been the response even from our own Connecticut congressional delegation, Dr. Malerba? Um, Well, you know, I think usually our Connecticut delegation is uh, very good about responding to issues around social justice, social equity, and public safety. Um, And so I I believe that the the current reauthorization bill needs to come to a vote. And so we would, of course, ask them to support Senator Feinstein's bill, which includes Title IX, Safety for Indigenous Women. And that's where a lot of those gaps will be closed if we can get that bill passed. Um, We were talking uh, earlier about um, how to uh, deal with prosecution of cases, helping uh, domestic violence survivors. But what about uh, children um, and also assaults on police officers on tribal lands? Exactly. And so that's what we're looking. We're looking to close those gaps. If you look at the Title IX that I just mentioned, Safety for Indigenous Women, it includes covered crimes and jurisdiction. So it helps with better data sharing. It helps with better data collection. And it closes those loopholes in that assaults of tribal justice personnel would be covered, child violence, dating violence, obstruction of justice, sexual violence, sexual trafficking, children experiencing violence or witnessing violence, stalking, and violations of protective orders. All of those are loopholes and gaps right now that are not covered, and we are looking to make sure that we are creating the safest environment we can for our tribal communities. Mm. Uh, Because we are here in Connecticut, I'm wondering if you could talk a little more about um, some of the experiences that the Mohegan tribe, even the Mashantucket Pequot uh, tribal nation, um, um, have experienced in terms of dealing with this issue. Well, we, um, you know, we would obviously deal with this issue um, within our own tribal communities, particularly when we think about um, the effects of trauma 
and how um, violence affects the next generations because we do believe that when children experience traumatic events, um, that it does change your DNA and your epigenetics. And so we need to address that early on and we need to address it in a very um, um, robust way. I think, you know, with both of our tribes, we work very closely with our state, local, and uh, federal jurisdictions. And, you know, so we collaborate and coordinate, I think, pretty well with the local law enforcement here. I mentioned that you are part of, uh, secretary rather, of this uh, United South and Eastern Tribes Sovereignty Protection Fund. Um, When you're working um, with these other uh, 27 federally recognized tribal nations uh, to address some of these issues, um, what are they um, bringing up that are issues that that VAWA, even the uh, jurisdictional problems they face that are impacting uh, their communities? Well, I think, you know, a lot of what's being uh, affected, and I will say that some of the tribes within our, um, within our USET family, as we say, are actually exercising the um, domestic violence special criminal jurisdiction um, capabilities and authorities under the 2013 uh, VAWA uh, reauthorization. So we're really happy about that uh, because we think that when tribes then do take uh, advantage of those authorities, their court systems are working really well. And if, for instance, there was a study that talked about those tribes that are exercising those authorities, mm-hmm. out of the people that they have prosecuted, um, they 85 of the defendants that they have prosecuted had 378 prior contact with tribal police before their tribe implemented these authorities. But 51% of those defendants were sent to batterer intervention or some other rehabilitation program because we know that we need to address why Mm -hmm. people are in this circumstance as opposed to just putting people in jail because they will just come out and reoffend. So we need to look at what are the causes of reoffending and how can we address those. Uh, But in those tribes that actually have taken over those cases, not one case and not one single petition for habeas corpus review has been brought to federal court. So even the people that are going into those tribal courts are um, are suggesting that there is fairness within the courts and they are satisfied with the outcomes. Well, I want to thank again Chief Many Hearts, Dr. Lynn Malerba, again in the Mohegan Tribe in Uncasville, Connecticut. Our time was short, but we do appreciate you giving us some of your time to talk about uh, these issues. Uh, thanks again. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. It's also our winter fundraising campaign. If you appreciate the wide variety of programs and conversations on WNPR and on Where We Live, please support this program with a pledge.